0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We have a great show, but I, I, I got to start it off by saying we probably have, what, 3,000 cookbooks in our house?
1: No, not 3,000 Three,
0: 3 million? I don't know. No, I mean- we
1: did have 1,300 cookbooks in our house, and I recently did some purging, oh, yeah. We're down which, to which was now. very hard to awesome. do because I love, love, love my cookbooks. Well, I love them.
0: and so, and so, and cookbooks are really the theme for today's show, but it's cookbooks that tell a story uh, and some Can very- Can we
1: interrupt? Because you're just not you doing don't wanna, this right. You don't, no, no, no. So like, here's the thing about cookbooks for me. Uh, you, the reason why I have so many is because they're not just a book that I look, scour through for a recipe. I really read them like- like a, a novel or a fiction or nonfiction book, I read them because there's so many great stories in there. Um, perspectives, the reason why the recipes are put together, there is a reason that there are thousands and thousands of cookbooks out there that have a roast chicken in it. Because everybody does it from a different perspective and has a grandmother who did it one way or a parent who did it another or a friend or et cetera. And that really speaks to me. So
0: Everybody in here is nodding and because, I'm like, roast chicken is roast chicken. <laughs> I know.
1: But So anyway, so today's show, a couple of weeks ago, uh, for the first time, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Bold Fork Books, and I can't believe it was like my first or second time in there. It is a little gem uh, that is in the Mount Pleasant area, and it is all about cookbooks. So uh, I'm so excited. Uh, You can do the introductions of everybody in studio, but that's how the show came (laughs) to be today. So go ahead. So,
0: all right. Well, first, of course, we've got – hi, Deb. Deb is with us. Deb Moser from Central Farm Markets. We're going to be talking – a lot about what's at market, but also their new Half Street uh, Center Farm Market is just open. just mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's winning while the Nats are losing. Uh, <laughs> our drink segment's going to be great. Jake Worth is here. He's the general manager at Bar Ivy. Uh, it's opening this month in Arlington, and it's owned by the Blagnan Hospitality Group. They own Tiger Fork and Calico and a lot of places you already know, and he's going to be mixing up a bunch of different cocktails for us. Mm-hmm. And the owners of Bold, Bold Fork Books are with us, Clementine Thomas and Sam Vasvi. Um, and we, you know, we were talking before the show. There are really only about fifteen bookstores in the country that are that are solely dedicated to cookbooks. So, I
1: can't you, wait to hear your story. You are almost cool. unique. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Laura Kuman is in with us. We had a chance to talk to. She wrote a fascinating book called book All Stirred Up: Suffrage Cookbooks, Food, and the Battle for Women's Right to Vote. And it's all it melds. It's a history book. It's it's anecdotes. It's, it's recipes. Recipes. But it all revolves around how how the suffrage movement really blossomed in the country.
1: I feel like it's a handbook for today. Yeah, I mean we should be taking notes with this book. Okay, go ahead.
0: All right, and another fascinating read Mm -hmm. is uh, Kate Lebo's the the book of difficult fruit. Uh, In it, she asks and answers the questions: What is difficult fruit? Uh, there are 26 fruits featured, and some are invasive, some are poisonous, some are sour. It's so fascinating. Uh, but they're also sweet, medicinal, and can make a great pie, so we're going to hear all about that. And that happens to be a particular interest of mine, and I'll explain that when we get into it. Okay. But um, let's get the show started. Deb. Deb Moser. Hi,
1: Deb. Good morning. My old How girlfriend. Are are How are you? <laughs> we are great. We don't, are great. Don't tell
0: You're your husband. Fun
1: markets. Yeah. All right. So how was the opening of Half Street? It's so exciting. It
2: was amazing. Uh, we had quite the crowd, even in the rain. Uh-huh. But the most amazing part was that Mayor Bowser declared it. We had a proclamation the first Saturday. of Every May has been declared, designated as Self Day, Sustainable, Equitable, Local Food Day. Okay. And to raise awareness of, about sustainable local food. Uh, they struggle to make those
0: acronyms work. That's good. <laughs>
2: i know it's well we're here for find, it but we were so pleased yeah I bet. that's so, so exciting a great day yeah we have great uh we have a different mix of vendors down there than we have at the other markets so come on out and mm-hmm. see you know all the new ones that we have and sugar snap peas are in mm. and the the beautiful colors of spring have hit so we have tons of strawberries and this week we did a a piece on how you can use your strawberries differently than than you usually use them, like maybe you want to do strawberry s'mores or a strawberry bellini or you know, just like mix it up. I like the strawberry
1: s'mores idea. I read the newsletter yeah. this week. I thought it was really smart. Like, right yeah. we we have such a short window of local fresh Six strawberries. Foods. Like, it lasts right. like it's over in a heartbeat.
2: <laughs> it is. It is. So get them. All, get. We see people walking out with flats of them, and I bet. you just can't eat enough they're great
0: all right i got one for you that ties into what we'll be talking to kate about were strawberries ever thought to be poisonous because they look tough you know they don't look like something you want to eat yes they do no they don't
1: deb's like i have no idea she has Deb, no you idea. should know say
0: yes just say right. yes you'll make me feel better kate will tell you us. know
2: what i've always eaten them they haven't poisoned me No, no. They... <laughs> all,
0: right. all right tell everybody where we can find central farm markets around the area
2: Okay, well, we have four locations, Yay. and you can find all our information on centralfarmmarkets.com, and we also have a Half Street Farm Market uh, website, so halfstreetcentralfarmmarkets.com. Excellent. Or halfstreetmarket.com.
1: Thanks so
0: anyway, much. All right. Thanks, all Deb.
2: information. All right, guys. Thanks. Enjoy. Bye.
0: Bye. All right, Jake. Jake Worth, step up to. Oh, you already stepped up He's to the already mic. Up I'm right up here. At the mic. You kind of look. Were you up late last night, Jake? I'm right here. I was. Tough I was. Night. We're
3: we're in the middle of training for the new restaurant, so it's you know 14 hour days. Oh, so yeah. Okay. Well, let's
1: give people some background on the Blackton Hospitality Group. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know who you are, but why don't you tell us
3: who you guys are? Oh, fantastic. So, uh, it's uh, partners Greg Algie and Nathan Beauchamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just they- like
1: saying Nathan's last name.
3: It rolls off the tongue; it, it really does. does. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they opened uh, the Feigning Goat uh, off of U Street mm-hmm. uh, several years ago, um, and then they forayed into Blagden Alley, hence the name. Right. Uh, so we have Calico, kind of a backyard, um, you know, casual eatery, and you know, uh, you totally
1: know. pre-pandemic prepared. I mean, geez, the whole thing is like outside. You guys could not have been more ready for it, right? It
3: was. It was. It, it was. Uh, it was Easier to navigate than most, I would say, probably. Absolutely. Other than um,
1: Tiger Fork, which is like a long, narrow place indoors. Right. Which must with, have been uh, hard.
3: You know, Cantonese street food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little Michelin nod uh, a couple of years ago, which was great. So we have those spots, and
1: oh, you have a Bib Gourmand. Uh, indeed. Congratulations! Looks well, like so exciting.
0: I knew that. You didn't know that, Corinne. Oh, you're you're feigning for the audience. Mm-hmm, she go knew. Ahead. Anyway,
3: <laughs> uh, So we've got uh, a new concept coming through, uh, Bar Ivy, uh, mm-hmm. out in Arlington, our first kind of real foray into Virginia uh, at the corner of Wilson Boulevard and Highland, right adjacent to the Clarendon Metro there. And what um, is
1: it that Bar Ivy is going to look to do?
3: So uh, – elevate the scene a little bit in arlington i think uh i think raise the bar down a a
1: gauntlet in arlington i I, I think
3: i think so i think we're gonna uh you know we're gonna attempt to do something that's um uh, a little more detailed a little more elegant a little more elevated than any of our other concepts right now as well Um, okay so we're looking to looking to you know push the push the needle a little bit
1: all right well we'll get into more of that throughout the show what do you how are you elevating our studio first
3: Oh well, we're gonna mix. Up, uh, we're gonna mix up a little <laughs> rebujito. Uh, so it's a uh, classic cocktail from Southern Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we're doing is low alcohol uh, beverages as part of the menu, mm-hmm. uh, session cocktails, if you will, and this will be one of them. So it's going to be a little bit of sherry, uh, fino sherry, uh, a
0: house made lemon lime soda. Uh, and that's it, really. Great. It all right. You While
1: you get to making mm-hmm. that, we're going to start we're with uh, Clementine well, and Sam. So let's talk
0: to Clementine and Sam. Clementine Thomas and Sam Vasvi, they're the co-owners of Bold Fork Books. It's a culinary bookstore. It's got a demo kitchen. It's all about food.
4: It is indeed. So why
0: don't you tell us? I um, mean,
1: but this uh, is not an easy endeavor to do. So how did you two start? How did you come up with this concept?
4: Well, we both – so our background – both of our backgrounds are in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so through our journey in the restaurant industry, cookbooks were always a tool for us to learn more about our craft, more about cuisine. But were you us. both – were you front of the we're house the back house. of the house. house? You were front yeah. of the house,
1: but you loved food. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean – Yeah, yeah, yeah. And – And the industry. And the industry. Mm-hmm. Um,
4: and then when we started traveling together – We happened to go to a few cities that had cookbook stores and just stumbled into them. And they were just these magical places that not only had cookbooks, which we love, but seemed to be these sort of community gathering spaces for the food community in all of its different forms. Um, And so we just felt D.C. could really use a space like that. I couldn't agree with you more. So,
0: I mean, the the offering there is a mix of new cookbooks and vintage cookbooks, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Mostly Where where do you find all your stuff? Just... How does it work?
5: Well, for the vintage,
0: come on up to the for the the vintage cookbooks.
5: um, We actually were lucky enough to um, find a collection that was basically going to go up for an estate sale, Mm. um, and it was by um, it was from uh, Jack Shaw's widow. Um, She she wanted the books to go to a a Someone that yeah. Someone that would care. Yeah, right. Would care. Yeah. And uh, we have uh, a storage unit full of, of <laughs> that's boxes great and boxes of uh, cookbooks. Um, he was a bit of a francophile gourmand. Mm-hmm. Um, he collected books, not even not to cook from them, just to collect books um, in his travels. And and it's just an amazing selection, and some of them are very rare. And we. We went Have in them on our shelves.
4: Yeah, Yeah. we went in with just a couple of bankers boxes just because we figured maybe there would be some cool titles. And we ended up acquiring all fifteen hundred. That's it's not amazing. amazing. Yeah. So
1: now. OK, so you find the pl- space in Mount Pleasant. Mm-hmm. But did you know from the beginning that you wanted to not just sell cookbooks, but uh, bring in authors for interviews, do a demo? How did you what how did you devise the space? And figure out how you were going to do it. So
4: the space kind of fell into our laps. We were popping up when it was Pear Plum Cafe. We had curated a little shelf. Um, And then when the pandemic hit, they decided they didn't want to move forward with their cafe concept, but wanted to keep their kitchen operation for each peach market in the back. Mm. So that is how we came up with this sort of very COVID space sharing agreement where we took over the front 500 square feet for the shop and they maintained their kitchen operation in the back. Mm -hmm. So that sort of Mm -hmm. dictated the feel of the space. And Mm -hmm. it's just in the last couple of months that we've been able to do in-person stuff in the shop. And I feel like it's completely blown open the sense of possibility. um, And it feels sort of like the real dream coming true finally.
1: I bet. Well, I would imagine... Just like me, when I love my cookbooks, getting to read a book and be like, oh, can we have her in? Like, mm-hmm. it's no different than me doing the show and being like, oh my God, I love this. Can I talk to them on air so they can share their story? And, you know, yeah. so now you're doing that in a very similar way. How do you guys, I mean, there are so many cookbooks out there and they're each one has its own place. Some of them, maybe not so much, <laughs> but uh, what, um, how do you curate? How do you go about s- selecting the kind of features that are in your store? Because you only have so much space. Yeah. yeah.
4: We, I, we do our best to have as diverse a selection as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, curating the food magazines is a, a personal favorite of mine. Um, just I because... do not want to just tell you that I, How
5: many?
1: in my purging, <laughs> I had to purge. I was like in a, I was a girl on fire. I got rid of Stacks and Stacks. Of uh, old gourmets.
0: Oh, well, yeah. that brings out a, a question. because It was you,
1: heartbreaking, but I didn't know what to do. do you Nobody want wants them.
0: People who are food nutcases like Nikki that collect <laughs> these things to contact you. I mean, is that what you is part of what feeds your your so, need?
4: So, at the moment, we don't really have the capacity for that. But the hope is that in the not too distant future, we'll be able to sort of open the door to people donating or purchasing from people. Um, But like a swap or something. Yeah, I mean we have tons of ideas percolating because this is not uh, an uncommon question. Mm -hmm. Um, But TBD, very soon. Stay tuned. Okay,
1: we will stay tuned for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to find out more what's coming up and what we can look forward to, especially this summer. This is David and Nikki Nellis. Uh, Who doesn't love a good book, especially a cookbook? We'll have more when we come back.
0: All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David, and Nikki, Nellis, and we're talking to Clementine Thomas and Sam Vasvi, who co-own Bold Fork Books. It's of buy and for cookbooks, the whole place. And you also have a demo kitchen. What happens there?
4: So it is technically the prep kitchen for each Peach Market, mm-hmm. um, but we so we actually just did our first cooking demo. Uh, Last month or the month before with Tenoria Askew for mm-hmm. her book, Staples Plus Five. Studio. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She came here afterwards. She was she amazing. Was, oh, she's so wonderful. She was so delightful. Yeah. yeah, so uh, delightful. Yeah, she's incredible. And it was so much fun to have people gather around the prep table to watch her work. So hopefully that will be kind of the first of many more interactive. Well, and
1: also um, I was there for one of your Q&As, mm-hmm. which I thought was really fantastic. It was – um uh, David Hagendorn interviewed Mrs. Wheelbarrow, yes. Kathy Barrow. Thank you, Kathy Barrow. Um, and, you know, it was just so great to watch those two, A, have a conversation. But, you know, hearing more about the book and the uh, Kathy's story and even David's story, both being from Pittsburgh, you know, putting the right people together for <laughs> interview and book author is so important mm-hmm. because um, – not knowing the person or not caring, you know, it could come off wrong. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. are you
4: enjoying that process? It's so much fun. I mean, we were super lucky to have Laura Kuman in I know. Her, to talk about all startup, okay. <laughs> um, and she uh, was in conversation with Joe Yonan. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, getting to know Joe and hearing him talk to Laura and hearing her talk about the book, it just it does kind of crack open this world that goes beyond just thinking about cookbooks and food writing. It's just recipes. Exactly. Right.
1: There's so much more going on in it. Yeah. Um, So what are some of the books that you guys are really hot for that are coming up this summer? And uh, what about some more of these Q&A or cooking demos? What's happening for you guys?
5: Uh, Well, you want to start? (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah. <laughs> so, so some books I'm super excited about that are coming up over the next few months. Um, we have Watermelon and Redbirds by uh, Nicole Taylor, which is all about Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Twitty has his new book, Prosher of Soul, coming out I cannot in wait for that. That sounds really terrific. It's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this fall, there's so many great titles. There's a new Claire Safet um, diasporican by Ileana Masonette. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, oh, a new pasta granny's book, which I'm like super excited so about. Do you have
0: publishers sort of crawling all over you now because there's so few bookstores that are dedicated to, I mean, that are a hundred percent cookbooks and culinary oriented.
4: We are still pretty new. So yes and no, yeah. it's, it's starting for us. There's mm-hmm. definitely momentum building, which is really exciting. Um, But, yeah, I mean, we're only a year and a half old, so. Well, so let me ask you a question, though, to piggyback on David's
1: question. With ordering books, given, again, that you only have so much space, so are you better off, you know, when it comes to the business model, ordering six books, eight books, and then just doing it slowly so that as they sell, you
0: order more? Or when they sell, do you drop ship? How do you handle it? How does it it
4: work? Yeah, so – I mean, it's been really interesting because mm-hmm. both Sam and I, as I said, come from yeah. restaurants. So this is a whole new industry. Right. So you're figuring so why, it out. We're,
5: we're, we don't know. Like, uh, will we keep keep our eye on trends and what's happening with uh, authors. And sometimes an author or two will get into some kind of combative oh, like, trouble, trouble yes. Twitter something. And then you're like, do you keep that book up front or do you move it? I know you the know? ethical questions are really hard. <laughs> you keep right? It up front. <laughs> I, I know.
1: We're all
4: grappling with that, I bet. You uh, know? Yeah. yeah. But we I mean we don't keep much because we have such a small space and mm-hmm. really no storage, we basically try to keep what we sell and then restock as needed as needed that makes sense okay
1: can you thank you guys so much for coming in it's so exciting what you're doing can
4: you tell everybody where they can
1: find you uh, online and on the street
4: yeah so our website is Mm -hmm. www.boldforkbooks.com and uh, you can purchase books stay abreast of upcoming events Um, and the shop is at 3064 Mount Pleasant Street
1: such
0: a
4: little gem thank you guys so much it's
1: so great
0: entrepreneurs I love it yes great
1: Absolutely. It's really great.
0: All right, let's go back to Jake. Uh, this is delicious. Thank and, you. And won't affect my driving, which is terrific.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay, so, Jake. So, Bar Ivy is opening. You said you're going to be elevating things for the Arlington region. Um, what does that look like for you? What What do you guys think you're going to be doing?
3: So, we're going to bring in a little of the West Coast vibe. Uh, the inspiration for the restaurant started out, um, you know, imagine – late 80s, early 90s, Spago in L.A. and the cafe Mm. scene in L.A. and kind of bringing that West Coast vibe, you know, vegetable-driven, seafood-driven, you know, working with local farmers and local fishermen to kind of provide that, um, you know.
1: So is this a play on the ivy in California?
3: It is not. Okay, I'm
1: just asking. I'm I'm not familiar. Okay. You're not familiar with the ivy? It's like the most famous, like, it's terrible. The food oh, is terrible. How do I I mean, we miss? But this? like all the stars go there uh, in Beverly Hills. Anyway, okay, never mind. <laughs>
3: uh, no, the the Ivy is you know kind of ties into the rest of our uh, the rest of our concepts a little bit with uh, the outdoors. We have uh, at at in Arlington here we have about a hundred and twenty five seat uh, garden seating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gonna you know enclosed by some old growth trees, mm-hmm. uh, and just feels very breezy, very coastal. Cool. Um, and we're going to kind of bring that vibe and, and you know provide the 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 detail in the cooking and in the service.
1: All right, we're going to get into that when we come back to you. What are you pouring for us next?
3: Uh, I think we're going to go purple teeny. We're going to celebrate that late '80s, early
0: '90s vibe.
1: I am all for it. Look at all my right. hair; I, it's already big. I am in the <laughs> '80s all the time. Okay,
0: my, mine used to be big. Now it's just little. All right, <laughs> so we're going to get into another interesting. Cookbook scenario here with Laura Kuman who used to be a lawyer. I don't know what happened. Well, she's still a lawyer. Are you still she's a lawyer? Are I you mean, still, you're always a you lawyer once bar? you have that no,
1: degree. You're not. You're I
0: ready?
6: think technically I'm called retired, you're but okay. you know, <laughs> once a
0: lawyer, I'm afraid always a lawyer. Exactly. But before, I mean, she's written a new book. It's called All Stirred Up: Suffrage Cookbooks, Food, and the Battle for Women's Right to Vote. But before we talk about that, she also wrote the Hamilton Cookbook: Cooking, <laughs> Eating, and Entertaining in Hamilton's World. How did I mean
1: how did you how did, become a history boss?
6: Yeah, what happened there? I guess I've always been a history nerd and someone asked me to write the Hamilton cookbook and mm-hmm. They did? Yeah. Wow. I, somebody I had met years before who said, "Do you remember me?" and I was like, "Yeah." And that was the
1: beginning. But you that involved a lot of research. I mean, had you had any experience writing a book before and writing recipes and doing all that or did you just figure it out as you went along? Or did you have a mentor?
6: I had a food blog, and I, which I still keep up, which right. is called Mother Would Know. Right.
1: And that's about sort of Because I feeling... think that's where you and I met initially on, like, you know, on Twitter. Like, we, didn't kn- we never met face-to-face, but we knew each other socially uh, because of your blog and because of my involvement in food media. So, like, we, we were in the same circles. We had just never met face-to-face. That's
6: right. And Mm -hmm. I I had thought originally about writing a book about getting comfortable in the kitchen. Written to be written for my kids and their friends. Mm -hmm. And then I realized my kids don't really read cookbooks. (laughs) They look online. If they need a recipe or if Mm -hmm. they want to know something, they just Google it. Right. So, you know I'm curious, right. So I didn't write a book. And uh, I started the blog, and then from there, I'm kind of a history nerd uh-huh. and I started the Hamilton cookbook. and then I found a suffrage cookbook and
0: is that what it would? Be? I mean, yeah, that's what got what I was you to ask. Clara Barton and all of that? Yes,
1: because it's amazing I mean this the historical information in here is so amazing and the way you lay it out and tell the story it, it's just fascinating. I mean, it really, I mean, it should be used as a blueprint for today, but hopefully with a lot shorter time because it's like 100 years. Like, we don't have that kind of time.
6: Well, I'm afraid it may be our daughters and granddaughters who are the ones who see the end to, well, and not even the end to uh, certain struggles. Right. You know, I found one suffrage cookbook and I'm kind of a history nerd. So I said, OK, I got to find every suffrage cookbook. And luckily, it turns out there are only handfuls. So. But
1: can you tell people what a suffrage cookbook is? Because I mean, I did not know that this was the way that women were communicating and working with one another during this time. So can you give a little background to it?
6: Sure. They were written by the women I call the forgotten suffragists. You know, not the, the nasty women, not the pink hat ladies of the 18th. Not 18- that there's
1: anything wrong with them.
6: No, no. Right. Takes mm-hmm. all kinds, but... You know, these women really wanted to convince and not to um, confront people. Mm -hmm. And so they started out doing these what are really just community cookbooks. You know, they'd bring a recipe and everybody put their recipes together and they'd publish it. And then they'd use it for fundraising. Mm -hmm. And then they'd take it door to door to canvas with it.
0: But here's my question, because back particularly when the suffrage movement began, the media for communicating were were for mass communicating were pretty limited so how did they i mean this was a became a national movement and and how did that how did they like get the word out well you
6: think you know owning your own media is new uh uh-uh. uh right they had their own magazines they had their own newspapers and they took these books and took them everywhere and for example the biggest so suffrage cookbook, which is from Washington state, was given by the Washington state suffrage women to other to the women in other states so they could use it when they went around canvassing. Well, and also even just to give out, you know, they Uh gave them hundreds of copies of it.
1: And within these cookbooks, was there any verbiage or anything relating to the cause or was it just recipes?
6: Sometimes there was, and sometimes there wasn't. Okay. And one of the cookbooks, only one that I've found, uses humor, and so they have kind of a uh Really interesting recipes that are really food for thought and not for cooking.
1: Okay, what does that mean? Like, for example, I'm so curious. Well,
6: you'll have to read the book to well, find I out. I have the book, yeah.
1: but I'm talking for people who have not read the book.
6: Okay, there. It was the one that came out of, interestingly, Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And this Pittsburgh Suffrage Cookbook has little book, little, uh, for example, a recipe for hymen bread.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
6: <laughs> and a recipe for. Pie for a Suffragist Doubting Husband.
1: Oh, does it kill yeah.
0: him? It comes with a hammer. <laughs> here, <laughs> sure. It says use velvet <coughs> gloves because, yeah.
6: you know, they need to be treated with uh, care and tact."
1: Oh, my God, I love that. That is so yeah. funny. Well, so let's talk. So you find these cookbooks, and then you decide you're going to write a book about it. But you had to do some real history digging because your timeline is pretty incredible. How did you go about doing that work
6: well when you love to research and you've been a lawyer mm-hmm. and you can find lots of sources including a lot of digital sources mm-hmm. and a shout out to the librarians of the world i love you mm-hmm. especially the librarians at the library of congress i was going to
0: say the manuscript division at the library of congress mm-hmm. you have a ton of Aww. stuff
6: and there's a special food division and there are librarians who specialize in cooking and
0: food, oh, oh
1: fascinating! I'll right, introduce we, you. we have to take a quick break. Uh, this is David and Nikki Nellis. We are on Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a sec.
0: All right, we're back on Foodie and the Beast, and we're talking to Laura Kuhlman, who has authored a great new book called "It's a Cookbook." It's a it's it's a history book. It's a book of great anecdotes. Mm-hmm. It's called "All Stirred Up: Suffrage Cookbooks, uh, Food, and the Battle for Women's Rights to Vote." A little bit about men. African American men got the vote in 18, technically got the vote, except for Jim Crow, but they were, they were allowed to vote legally in 1870. African-American women could not. And, and, and obviously because women couldn't get the vote, but when women, when women in quotes all got the right to vote, they still could not vote. They couldn't get to the polls. They weren't allowed to get to the polls in, in, in most cases to cast their votes. So, so was there, there were kind of a sub-movement there in the civil rights movement that that parallels what's discussed in your book? Well, a lot of the
6: early suffragists were actually came out of the abolitionist movement. And so after the Civil War, there was a lot of discussion about whether they should be in favor of voting rights for all African-Americans or only men because there was a groundswell of of interest in giving – African American men the vote mm-hmm. women right. not so much and in 1920 when all women supposedly got the vote by the 19th amendment you know there was still jim crow and there was actually there were laws that prevented chinese american women
1: mm.
6: from voting even after the 19th amendment was passed in 1920 That's so
1: so did but did the fight continue i mean clearly or did like did the women, once the white women got the vote, did they consider it were done or did they know that the fight needed to go on?
6: Well, a lot of them did know that the fight needed to go on. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a lot of people don't know that the League of Women Voters actually came out of the suffrage movement. Hmm. And there were many members of the suffrage movement who continued to work for full voting rights for everyone. Unfortunately, there were also people in the suffrage movement, men and women, who were racist and who were xenophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, they really didn't want people of color
0: or foreigners to vote.
1: Interesting.
0: All right, another uh, question. Okay. I want, no, I want. Well, I want to get into the recipes. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll get into the recipes. Okay, in go a ahead. Second. And ask your question. Clara Barton. She goes from taking, you know, taking care of wounded soldiers on the battlefield to becoming a leader in the suffrage movement. What What happened with her? Well, she was
6: one of those. Famous people who joined in the suffrage movement, but who were famous for other reasons. And, for example, Clara Barton could talk to soldiers from the Civil War in the way that a lot of other people just didn't – they didn't have the cred, the street cred. Mm. And so when she said to the soldiers, you know, I helped you when you were weak and I was strong. Now I'm weak and you're strong. you got to help me and my sex. I mean that meant something. That's
1: Powerful. That's really that's fascinating. Doesn't it give you a goosebumps? Yeah. All it right. Small fast.
0: plug. If you want to know about Clara Barton, the definitive Clara Barton uh, biography is by Stephen Doctor Stephen B Oates mm-hmm. O A T E S. It's about to be made into a movie.
1: That is true. Cool. And David's mentor. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why he's giving you a shout out. All right. Okay. So now let's talk about the recipe collection in here because what's really interesting is you sort of give it the context of the day that it's in and updated for today. Why did you do that?
6: Well, it turns out that the suffrage movement happened at the same time as what we used to call home ec, which was also domestic science. Right. And a lot of the recipes, man, they're just too white and they're really bland uh-huh. and they got way too much sauce. So Interesting. I had to kind of Too update. much
1: sauce. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah.
6: And so we had to, I had to update them to make them something that you would want to eat today, mm-hmm. but that still hearkened back, you know, that still really was true to the original recipe.
1: Okay. So now you brought in gingerbread today. Oh. What was it about the original gingerbread recipe and what did you have to do to it to get it to today's standards?
6: Well, I didn't have to do too much to the gingerbread, but it was huge. I mean, the original recipe was like for, I don't know who they were feeding.
0: Right. The Union Army, of course.
1: <laughs> it was just a massive recipe. Right. Massive. Isn't that funny? You so I cut to, it down. Can for we bring a that second. over?
0: You just have to smell it. I have it's, no doubt. It's so. Fabulous.
6: Oh, shout out to my daughter who gave me the most wonderful ginger.
1: Oh, okay. From oh, a
6: woman owned uh, spice. Just...
1: Oh, so gorgeous. Wow. Wait, I want to take a picture of it okay. before everybody right. digs in. Okay. Um, so what were some of the recipes that you found that you were like, oh, that's weird, that you were really surprised by? Was there anything in there that really sort of— Possum
0: like, or something? Yeah, it was like a <laughs> squirrel or—not
1: that they're weird, but obviously we're not eating them today. Well, I'm not eating them today, so.
6: Well, there's a recipe for Mexican noodles.
1: I saw that recipe. There is nothing Mexican, Mexican about, about it. that. Right. And
6: it is not what we would eat today as, you know, I mean, the pasta grannies wouldn't like it. The Mexicans wouldn't like it. I don't know who would like it. But I had to put it in the book because you
1: have to see it. Right. And so why – do you know why they gave it its name, Mexican?
6: Because that's what they thought food from other ethnicities was like. They were all into what we would call, quote, unquote, Americanizing stuff was.
1: Right. And I mean, really, why? (laughs) Right. I don't know. It was a crazy time. I mean, it's always crazy times. This book is so terrific. Laura Kuhnman, thank you so much for joining us in studio today. Tell everybody where they can find your blog, where they can find you on social media, and where they can find the book.
6: Well, you can find me at motherwouldknow.com or at my author site, which is Lauracuman.com You can find me on social media at laurakuhnman, and that's K-U-M-I-N, like the spice, only with a K. K? And the book, <laughs> I'd say... Go to Bold Fork Books. Yay! yay. Yay. Shout out to the best bookstore in D.C. And I mean, I love all independent Mm bookstores, but like a mother, I have my Uh, favorites. Now, before you
0: go, what kind of law did you practice?
6: I practiced mostly education law, law related to educational institutions, and I knew a lot of history professors in my day. (laughs) I
1: guess so. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Laura.
0: You are a renaissance woman.
1: You are. Okay. Back to Bar Ivy. So... We've talked about sort of the food that you're going to be doing, and I see we've had these two cocktails. Both of them are pretty low ABV cocktails. Is that going to be sort of the vibe of cocktails at the new bar, Ivy?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think for the for the most part, it's something that we're definitely leaning into. Um, mm-hmm.
0: But that's a thing across a lot of bars. Why is that all of a sudden? I
3: why go out and have one or two drinks and. When you can, you know, you can spend time with your friends. You can hang out outside. You know, you can you can stretch the evening. Clearly, I've met my night,
1: daughter.
0: So. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no. But here, here's why I'm asking because bars make their money pouring booze, right? And if you've got lower, you know, uh, you know, low, lower AB beverages. You you may be pour, you may be making more drinks, but you're not pouring as much alcohol. So but economically, charging
1: the same price. What are you no, talking about?
0: Is that really how it works?
1: Yeah. I, I mean,
3: it, there, there's a sliding scale, obviously, but yeah. I mean, we'd rather I, we'd much rather sell three drinks versus two drinks, right? It, it adds up to be the, roughly the same. Thing. All right. So, but, but I think so it's, a, I, think it it's a, was, I think it's a health thing. I think it's a I think it's a forward thinking thing, and I think it's. A return almost, um, and, and, a, and a shying away from this like American overindulgence and kind of embracing uh, a different kind of lifestyle.
1: Okay, so the cocktail menu you're putting together is all low ABV.
3: Uh, it's not all low, low ABV. We we also uh, sort of tip our hats to proper cocktails, so mm-hmm. it's divided into proper and session cocktails.
1: Got you. Okay. Uh,
3: you know, we're featuring uh, this this last one that we had, the purple tea. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of running through the garden, right? So it's. Butterfly PT infused gin, um, so which is a flower. Uh, you've got the garnish in there, which is actually rose petals it's from beautiful. my garden this morning. Uh huh. Um, you've got uh, creme de violette and made from violets, so it, kind of embracing this sort of garden. But it doesn't thing. feel
1: like a really boozy drink.
3: Uh, this one's. This one's up there, actually. Is it really? Yeah, it doesn't feel
1: like it, yeah. does it? Let me yeah. have another sip. Yeah. Um, okay, so what are you making for us next?
3: Uh, I think we'll go uh, in from the garden into the woods and okay. feature some foraged ingredients. Uh, our executive chef, Jonathan Till, and our beverage director, Ian Fletcher, uh, both are really, really into going out into the for- forest and foraging.
1: Okay. Uh,
3: so, And also kind of tying back to some of the books and old recipes. Uh, we're going to make some root beer. Uh, this is an old recipe uh, in involving some foraged ingredients. And did you we're gonna bring make some, in make some the root? root beer. Of yeah, root we've beer? got a little got a little sass for us. They, Oh my uh, god! They pulled this out of their secret sarsaparilla spot.
1: How cool is that? Uh, Look, earlier
3: this week, yeah. Mm.
1: that is so neat. Okay, cool. So, what are you making for us?
3: Uh, so, it's going to be homemade root beer, and okay. it's got the oh, sarsaparilla like and mint and uh, sarsaparilla, um, and it's. Kind of a play on an old um, Native American root beer recipe.
1: Love it. Okay, great. While you get to making that, we're going to talk to our next guest. Our and next please, guest, everybody, dig in to Laura's gorgeous gingerbread, please.
0: Our next guest is. But don't also eat all of it because I want Aptly <laughs> described as a Renaissance woman, Kate Lebo uh, wrote a book that we're featuring today called "The Book of Difficult Fruit." It's mm-hmm. her first piece of nonfiction, her first collection of nonfiction, but. She's the author of a cookbook called Pie School. Mm-hmm. She's written poetry. Mm-hmm. She, she also wrote an essay that was published in the New England Review about listening through hearing loss. So uh, how do you find time to? <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy woman. <laughs> you are a busy woman, I Kate. I also
7: have an 18-month-old. Oh, my God, God. You have oh my a God. baby. Oh, congratulations uh, there. It's when so
0: I, so, I mean, this book is really fascinating. And, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what got you onto this?
7: You know, oh, this book really came from um, themes, ideas that I really wanted to explore in high school. But as I was writing that cookbook, I realized that I felt like I had a contract with the reader. That meant they, when they came to that cookbook, I really just needed to teach them how to make pie. Mm-hmm. So that meant they weren't necessarily coming for um, A political manifesto. They weren't necessarily (laughs) necessarily coming for a history book, nor were they coming for a memoir, uh, which left out just so much that I really wanted to explore about food, about recipes, about fruit. Um, So fortunately, you know, there's always another book to write. right? right? (laughs) Um, So difficult fruit for me, it's not necessarily... I mean, there's there's a way to find difficulty in all fruits. David, you were asking, you know, was strawberry ever considered poisonous? Was it ever a difficult fruit? I don't have an answer for the for people cons- whether or not people considered it poisonous. But I do know you could think of people's allergies, for example, as being a difficulty of that fruit, mm-hmm. which is just an illustration of of uh, this book was an opportunity for me to think about what are the fruits that are out. That, that come to us from outside the grocery store, that live in our backyards, that live in our parks, that live in the wilderness, that live in our memories, our imagination. Um, and how does the way that they resist um, domestication or easy commodification, um, what, what stories can I learn and tell from those qualities?
1: That is, I mean, what you're saying is so fascinating. I don't think the general uh, consumer thinks that way about the products that they eat. You know, we're sort of, we go into the grocery store, we see all this food, we just buy it based on what we know. But it. every now and again, whether you're at a farmer's market or a grocery store, you know, you find like a Something. fruit or vegetable and you're like, I've never seen this before. I don't know what and this is. And it's shocked at work.
7: And it makes sense that we, you know, we can go to Costco and get our apples and little plastic clam chefs, right? right. They come to us as a commodity not as a living thing and there's some necessity in that and there's market forces in that mm. um, but then yeah you go to the farmer's market and just see these all these apples whose names you've never learned and right won't be able to remember the next day but there's that shock suddenly of remembering like oh the food is alive and it right. exists outside of this grocery store that i'm used to going to all
1: right kate we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're to talk about the research that you did to Find out about some of these fruits and uh, what shocked you most. This is David and Nikki Nellis. Uh, Not all fruit is difficult, but some of it appears so. We'll be back in just a sec.
0: All right, we're back on Fooding the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Kate Lebo, who has authored a really interesting book called The Book of Difficult Fruit. I had an argument with an apple once. (laughs) Uh, Very difficult. For what? (laughs) The apple. Come on, come on! You've 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 been talking to me for five minutes. You know the Apple one. Okay, so um, no, how but, did you wait, do? Okay, no, no, ahead, I have a question. All
1: right, we'll get to
0: it. Back through history. Now, here's here's a side question: Is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? It's a fruit. Okay,
7: but but that really points to the elasticity of the way we use the word fruit. So, a fruit I mean, it's is grown on a, a vine. way to describe something anatomical about a plant. So, okay, you know, grasses have fruits. But not the way that we would think of them, and we use the word fruit to describe anything that we use in a sweet application. So rhubarb is suddenly a fruit, even though obviously it's a vegetable. Right. Tomatoes show up in savory dishes in our culture, so we call them vegetables. Right. That right. makes sense. It, right.
1: Where we we need things to fit into our squares, right? So uh, it you, needs to be easily fit. But
0: I want to follow up because okay, there was a time up. when when tomatoes were thought to be poisonous just because they looked. Red and and scary and nasty, correct? So
7: right, they belong to the nightshade family, and some nightshades are very poisonous.
0: And uh, well,
7: like what night uh, nightshade? Oh, nightshade. don't, don't eat what nightshade. Okay. nightshade don't eat nightshade. Nightshade is which
0: is used in fairy tales. Oh. But so, yeah. I mean, over the course of centuries, fruits that have been uh, like tomatoes have looked been looked at initially as poisonous. How did people? you know, um, acclimate to them, you know, habituate to eating them when, you know, everybody said, well, they're poison. How did that, how does that happen? Gosh,
7: you know, I bet Laura could probably tell you exactly with her history knowledge, how the tomato moved from being poisonous to edible. So, but sometimes, um, so I think that that movement happens over time in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Right. But today that's going to happen probably through, um, uh uh, a marketing um association it's gonna happen with money
1: with marco polo right so Uh, so it's interesting you have the juniper berry in here which i thought mm -hmm. was interesting given that gin gin is uh so prolific so tell us a little bit about what i want to know is how did you find these things what were you looking for when you did the research for the book and then featured them in here like the durian sure. and things like that, like all the different, um, I mean, there's some some in here that I never heard of, but even the vanilla bean is in here. You have a bunch in here that are very interesting and now a part of our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I started with
7: this book, uh, knowing the structure of it, it was going to be an abecedarian, which means we're going to go all the way through the alphabet. I'm going to get to imitate encyclopedias that way and kind of wink at the way I'm going to try to present an encyclopedic knowledge of each of these fruits. But of course, I am so limited. The book is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, our encyclopedias, right? It was so funny doing some of the research for vanilla, for example. I would find pretty, fairly incidental facts um, different across different ency- encyclopedias. Interesting. Different, oh. different years um, noted for when the vanilla- must it, for So, you know, not history changing or life changing, but still this moment where the ground is shifting under the researchers saying, wait, what sources can we trust? Right. Exactly. How do we know anything? Right. Uh, so, so started with that structure of a, a to Z. And then it became an issue of finding a fruit whose name started with a letter that I want, but also a fruit that sparked my interest. Okay. So, there's, you know, so many wonderful fruits that start with L, Laquat. Loganberry, mm-hmm. Lincolnberry, all that. And for no good reason, I really just didn't find the, the the fact or the image that sparked an interest in any of those particular fruits. And it became actually the only, like, there's two chapters in the book, three chapters in the book that aren't actually featuring fruits. And that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a metaphor about fruit. And stuff. Right,
1: right. It's really, yeah. really interesting. Um, the was- joker was obvious because I needed a J. Okay, well now I get that. <laughs> And it's mysterious.
7: So, so in trying to do research for juniper, I quickly found that they had an association with a, uh, being an abortifacient, but I could not find any actual information, direct information about how it was used as an abortifacient, which huh. just put my antenna up as a researcher.
1: Right. Of course. So you couldn't find anything about it. It was just a myth about it. I wasn't sure. It was. I was. So I. So I found.
7: Uh, um, I found about out about. I. I knew about its association um as an abort efficient, I think just through the ether. Okay. I found it mentioned in my sources only in um a folklore encyclopedia.
1: Interesting. But,
7: but then any uh, source that I was looking at to try right. to understand, so what exactly did people do? There right. was no information at all. Interesting. And there's there's good reasons for that because you know information about abort efficients is taboo yeah. Remains taboo We're seeing that right now with of the course. way of course. We're right. trying to outlaw, you know, this and stuff. Right. I guess that's an exaggeration, but it's my fear.
1: Um, no, it's not an exaggeration, and your fear is well-placed. I, so. I can't I can Right, no, wrong show. I hear you. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm with you. I'm going to the protest yeah. with my daughter today. We're on the same page. So yeah. um, anyway, all right, listen, this book is really interesting, and the research you put in it is just amazing. Where can we find you online and on Instagram and find out more about your other book and this book? Book of Difficult. Sure, so
7: I have a website that's just my name. It's Kate Lebo, Uh K-A-T-E-L-E-B-O.com. Yep, And you can find me on Instagram at Ms. M-I-Z-E, Kate Lebo.
1: Excellent, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a great book. It was really great to have you. All right, back to Bar Ivy. Um, This root beer, I feel like it fits in with like what Laura's doing and Difficult Fruit, like everything... That we're doing today, serendipitous. this is so serendipitous. You are right, right? serendipity. Yeah. Um, so, what are we looking for for opening of Bar Ivy? Give us a little, a little something, something on that.
3: Uh, we are training right now. Um, the building is done, and uh-huh. we're a week uh, two weeks out. Okay, Open to the public. So that's
1: very exciting. Yeah, and we're what's excited. the menu look like?
0: Uh, so I mean, is uh, it
1: because me- when I hear Bar Ivy, I don't think lots of food.
0: I don't think food. Right. I think. Think, think sharing with your
3: friends, right? You're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna come out the menus. Well, that's uh, gonna be a problem for him. He a, hates sharing. <laughs> a lot of a, a lot of small plates. <laughs> okay, uh, some larger family style plates. That is a calumny. Some, little, snake, my some little snacks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Uh, so a little but bit everything. But it is a full fledged menu. Full fully fledged. Full fledged menu. But, iber uh, entrees, dessert, the whole thing.
3: Yeah, but 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 couched in a way that you know it's meant to be shared. Or hey, if you're just coming out and having a little snack, a little drink. Uh, also be able to do that. So, um, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, making sure that we're a neighborhood spot. Making sure it's mm-hmm. a gathering place. Mm-hmm. Um, that I worked in the neighborhood for a long time, and and just absolutely love the community in Clarendon, love the people, okay. um, and look forward to hosting all of my friends uh, back and and uh, out in our garden area, and out there's an outdoor
0: bar as well. Great. The um, garden area seats 100. What'd you say, 165? It's about 125. That's a lot of bodies. That's great. Yeah. We've also got a little, uh, in that
3: bar, the area that's outside there is a little coffee kiosk, and we're working with passenger coffee out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Sure. Doing fantastic work. Uh, So it'll be a little bit of an outpost for them, and you'll be able to come up from the metro, grab some coffee, espresso, cappuccino, grab that to go, and that'll be sort of our daytime uh activation some pastries and things
0: like that well well. i'll be there and it's not that i don't like sharing i just prefer to order what i want and eat it i don't absolutely (laughs) well i I, share with nikki and i share with the kids i just don't you know our friend brian who reaches in and takes everything you know certainly certainly uh available (laughs) available as well okay all right
1: um listen we really appreciate you coming in these cocktails are amazing the root beer are we pouring one more
3: we should have a little wine. Oh, okay. So, what are we pouring? A fun, a fun part of what we're doing uh, is focusing on low intervention wines. Okay, uh, wines from families, wines, wi- wines that are made by mothers and daughters, and in small places, mm-hmm. in, in in tiny batches. So uh, when you say low the intervention, the are these all mean, American wines? Or are no, they? No, no. They're, no, they're not. Oh, um, but but we got a sh- wine for you. No, sh- from Natural,
1: <laughs> natural wines.
3: Uh, natural wines. I, we, I, we prefer to say low intervention. I, you know, I think the natural wine kind of carries a— a, some weight in terms of connotation and we're just working with a farmers. Connotation. That, a little bit, but yeah. we're working with farmers that are we'll using grapes what? that are using grapes that are it. indigenous to to the area and using grapes that work and grow well without having to use a lot of water and a lot of pesticides and things like this. So, so Biodynamic. Um, uh, most of them, yes. Okay. Although the certification process is such that no, 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 some of
0: these little small wineries, they they just can't. They can't. They can't I don't know. For most yeah. Yeah. of us, right. the word, na- the phrase natural wine does not have negative connotations. Okay, that's because you don't I know don't what it is. I don't want unnatural wine. You don't know what it is. We, um, can you just we, tell we, us we we what can you're can pouring? Because I
1: literally have like 30 seconds Absolutely. That.
0: So uh, we're going to feature a local one
3: from Old, West, Old Westminster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is their Blinded by the Light. And it's really cool. It's Piquette. Man for man blended with a little uh, Vidal Blanc and Grüner Veltliner, So it's got this, like, really light, zippy, again, low ABV. It's about 6.5%, I think. Cool. Okay. Um, well, delightful. thank
1: you so much for all coming right. in. We can't wait to check out Bar Ivy. Do you have anything to say before I wrap up the show? I do. Hurry.
0: Uh, there appears to be, first of all, the world is so screwed up. Mm-hmm. It's a mess. But uh, with particular regard to the Ukraine, there appears to be all we. Uh, out there in the in the in the world, there are people are getting weary of you know hearing the news about Ukraine because they want it. I guess we expect we're instant gratification. It's it's not over. It's not going to be over for a while. Open up your wallets. Send money through the Red Cross. Send go to you can go to CNN.com, um, and there there are all kinds of charities there that you can donate to. Okay. Um, you can – no, I'm not done. Well, well I you,
1: no, yes, you are. You have said this every week, I, and now we have And I, I want people to listen issues. because
0: it's dropping off. I want people to, to, to open up their wallets and support those folks.
1: Okay, you just need to learn how to be more concise. No, I don't. Uh, there are lots of issues facing us all over uh, this United States. Um, I'm taking my daughter down to the march today to keep um, – people's hands off of women's bodies. It is also another cause that we are greatly for. So yes, open up your wallets to help those in Ukraine. It is a terrible, terrible situation, but so is what's going on here in this country. So uh, keep your eyes open and be vigilant. Uh, It does look like the pandemic is winding down, but people are still asking you to wear masks. If they do, just put one on. And remember, there are still staff shortages out there in the restaurant industry and in all retail Just be kind. Nobody wants to give you a bad experience. Everybody's doing the best they can. So take those kindness pills. I want to thank all of our guests for coming in today. And thank you for joining us. Be careful out there and have a delicious week.